Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today is going to be a fascinating show because as an author, I actually have favorite authors who aren't me because I don't have that big of an ego. At least I like to think that my ego is smaller than yours, which by the way, would make me egotistical in case you missed the joke there. But Ryan Holiday. And Mimetic, by the way. And Mimetic, there you go. Uh, Ryan Holiday is, is, if not my favorite, one of my top several favorite authors. Uh, He uh, just has, he does the work, right? And I, I respect his, his writing greatly. And some of his books have nailed things that are very hard to put into words. And he recently hosted my guest today, um, who is Luke Burgess on his Daily Stoic podcast. And they talked about Luke's book called Wanting. And also Adam Grant, who's been on Bulletproof Radio, endorsed Luke's book. And it talks about why you want what you want. And this is fundamental. This is some of the the nuggets of this are sprinkled in Game Changers, my book, where I interviewed four or five hundred people who've done big things to find out what you know, what were the secrets. But I think this is a, a worthy topic for us today, uh, because if you want things you don't actually want, the way I ran my life until I was about thirty, let me tell you, it will suck. And it will suck hard. And the sooner you get that lesson in your life, whether you're 70 or 17, it doesn't matter. You got to get this. And I think there's really cool knowledge from Luke today about something called mimetic desire. Luke, welcome to the show. Thanks for that intro, Dave. Uh, It's good to be with you. Good to be on. You're interesting in many different ways. But part of it is that you you started four companies in wellness and consumer products and technology. I don't know. I've only started like six or something. <laughs> so <laughs> the mimetic I, I rivalry has already started. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, not at all, but just, you know, a similar path. And, you know, you thought you had everything you wanted, but you didn't. And so you apparently got bored and I don't know why you would do this, but you went, you looked at French scholars, which are some of the most annoying ones. Sorry if you're from France, but your scholars suck. Um, for the most part. <laughs> and uh, Rene Girard, Girard, however you say it in French. Girard. Yeah. Girard. See, I live in Canada, but I don't speak French. So I'm a bad Canadian, apparently. Um, and you said, oh, this is a, a person who said, okay, um, we actually just imitate other people's desires and it changed your life and you wrote a book about it. So when did you know that, oh, gee, you know, being a successful entrepreneur with tons of money and all that kind of stuff, that that wasn't what you wanted? Yeah, well, you mentioned until around the time that you were 30, um, you, sounds like you, you know, had been chasing some desires that brought you some pain. And that's about the age that I had the same realization. Um, had started a few companies, some successful, some not successful, but I had standard totems of success, but I was absolutely miserable. Um, I was in the worst shape of my life. Um, I was just, I was on the hedonic treadmill and it just seemed like nothing was going to make me happy. Uh, and I had a blown up business deal. Uh, with Zappos.com and Tony Shea. And it basically forced me to take a freaking break and rest for the first time in my entire life. I'd just been go, go, go up until that point. And I hadn't done much self-care. I hadn't done much introspection, much reflection. I just sort of checked the boxes, you know, like life was like a video game and you just beat the level and you get to the next level. 
um, like right out of college. It was like I would get my first job. And before I'd even started, I'd put the job on my resume and thought about how I could leverage it and parlay it to get the next job. And it's just sort of a miserable way to live when like nothing's enjoyable in and of itself, right? Like, some things yeah. are just meant to just be enjoyed, you know, for, for what they are. And I, I just didn't experience that until I had kind of the, a forced time out. Um, and I, I took a few months. I traveled a lot. Um, I started taking care of myself. I started reading stuff that I, you know, claimed that I read in high school is total bullshit. You know, I never read it. Classic literature, philosophy, which I'd always been interested in thinkers and philosophy. I mean, we, you mentioned Ryan Holiday in the beginning. Um, the Stoics, you know, are fascinating figures. And, you know, what Ryan was able to do is just write about them and, and get across their ideas so that more people have access to these ideas. Um, it's sort of very similar to what I'm trying to do with Rene Girard. But I, I read for the first time in a long time, and I started taking care of myself. And one of the thinkers that I came across was this thinker, Rene Girard. Um, he's somewhat influential in Silicon Valley circles, mm-hmm. um, but that's not how I stumbled across him. Uh, I'd stumbled across him through a wise old sort of spiritual mentor who suggests that I read some of his work and said, this might help you figure out some of the stuff that's going on in your life. So <clears throat> I did. Um, and I was immediately struck by the insights and I couldn't believe that I'd never heard of him before or that he's just not somebody that's that people talk about at all, but you said it yourself. He's, he's a French academic, a French scholar, <laughs> and he's just languished in the obscurity of academia uh, yeah. up until about a decade ago or so. Um, He's fascinating for a number of different reasons. One, he's, I think he was one of the, the last really, really great interdisciplinary thinkers that sort of studied all different kinds of things. A lot of people are just hyper siloed these days. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're hyper, we have hyper siloed knowledge. We're not able to make connections between different fields of inquiry. Um, but if you can connect business with philosophy, with with the science, with how you know, that that to me, there's not a lot of people that are able to do that, and Gerard was able to do that, um, and he had this fundamental insight into the nature of human desire by reading classic literature. Now that might sound a little bit weird. Um, Gerard was not um, a literary person. His degree, his PhD, was in history with a specialty in medieval history, but he was thrown into teaching literature classes at the university that he was at. And he started reading these classic works. And at the time, the uh, the sort of mode of inquiry among sort of English and literature intellectuals was that you always have to separate the work from the author and that you should never sort of try to find patterns between different works. They, they all need to be taken completely on their own. Uh, and Gerard sort of be, being an outsider, not having been part of the academy, just didn't even know about that or just threw, just threw that completely out. And he said, well, that doesn't seem quite right because if books are written by humans, then it seems like we shouldn't detach the author from the work itself. Um, and different books by different humans might hold some key to understanding a truth about human nature that the humans are embedding in the writing that they themselves might not even know that they're embedding in the writing. In other words, he set out to try to find a clues about human nature 
from the text themselves. And he wanted to see if there was a pattern between the text. Um, this is very much like um, th- there was a historian that basically found the lost city of Troy because he was the only one that yeah. actually like read the Iliad and the Odyssey and thought that there was anything worth paying attention to, right? Everybody else was like, oh, it's just mythology. And he said, no, I'm actually going to like, I believe there's probably truth embedded in the text and I'm going to follow it wherever it goes. And he, long story short, he ended up finding Troy, what we know as Troy. I remember reading that when I was 14 about that guy and going, what a genius, you know, he's, he's the guy who, who did what everyone said you shouldn't do. And I was always attracted to him. It's cool that you brought that up. Super cool. So Gerard, he's like the model for Gerard and he was anti-memetic. In other words, everybody else was looking one place and he said, well, I'm going to look in the one place that you all don't think is even worth looking at. Right. And there's a lot related to entrepreneurship there. Right. Um, so Gerard, what the pattern that he found in the text was that the, the way that characters in these texts desired things was by imitating the desires of other powerful characters in the stories. So none of them just wake up and spontaneously desire some goal or a career path or uh, to pursue a woman or something like that. The desire is always modeled for them by another character in the novel. And he said, really bad novels, really bad fiction, the desire is completely spontaneous. But the best fiction, the reason why we're so attracted to it, you look at you know Cervantes, Don Quixote, Dostoevsky, the characters in those novels desire mimetically, meaning they're, they're always imitating the desires of other people. And he, he said it's striking when you read the, these works knowing that. And he, he stumbled on this clue about the way that the, some secret about human nature uh, that we're just now starting to be able to validate scientifically. Like we're now discovering there are reasons, there are things in the brain that make us imitate um, not just surface level things, but even people's intentions and desires. And, you know, that discovery made something click for me. And I realized that throughout my life, throughout, you know, wanting to having to go to a certain school, having to get jobs at certain companies, having to get, you know, named certain things by certain magazines it was all driven by, first of all, what other people's expectations of me were. Um, and those expectations were given to me by the models in my life that were modeling desire for one thing or another. And I had, at no point did I stop and ask myself um, why I had chosen to pursue the, the things that I was pursuing. I just convinced myself um, that it was the product of my own individual, um, sort of decision-making when in fact I was like a, I was like a puppet with a puppeteer, meaning like the social forces in my life that were pulling me in all different kinds of directions. I I remember I, I was absolutely convinced that if I could make a bunch of money that I'd be happy. So therefore I want to make a bunch of money. And I made $6 million when I'm 26. And I look at a friend and I go, I'll be happy when I have 10 million. And then I lost it all by the time I was 28. <laughs> and like, what a jerk move, right? On many different levels. But it was ex- exceedingly common because I wasn't alone. There were hundreds of other people who made way more money than we should have in our 20s and early 30s at you know the early tech company. And um, everyone had the same sort of thing, like more, more, more. And then I said the same thing. Oh, I'll, I'll be happy you know, when I'm famous. And I was an entrepreneur magazine for selling the first thing ever sold over the internet. And I'm like, Oh, there are a million people seeing my picture. And I felt good for like 20 minutes. And I'm like, wait, nothing changed. My phone rang one more time the next day, but it was like, it, it was 
you know, like like a, an orgasm. We're like, I almost had an orgasm, but it didn't really sound <laughs> like really. that wasn't what I was looking for there. Like, it didn't feel as good as it was supposed to, <laughs> right? And yeah. and so, well, well, if fame doesn't make you happy, and money doesn't make you happy. You know what the heck is left? And it 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 was pretty traumatic for me to do it. And I started doing a lot of personal development work, and you know that's been a basis for like the neuroscience side of what I do and some of the books I write. But for you. It seems like you went in more of a religious direction. I mean, you're at Catholic University and, you know, active prayer is one of your startups. How big of a role is faith and Christianity in your take on mimetic desire? Because I don't want to separate you from your book because then Renee would be pissed at me if you're still alive. <laughs> there are, you can separate out. So mimetic theory is a unified theory. Okay. It starts with this fundamental idea of mimetic desire that humans don't want completely autonomously and independently. That's sort of a, a, a lie of romanticism. He calls it the romantic lie. So mimetic desire, we can separate that out and talk about that um, all day long. And there's fat, it, it plays out in, in, in sort of mimetic movements in the stock market, right? Like people wanting, you know, certain stocks or certain cryptocurrencies because other people want it uh, to, you know, to dating, um, mimetic games are played in, in dating and romance all the time. But the the other parts of the theory are sort of spiritual in nature because you, and then you can ask the question, where does desire come from in the first place, right? Like what is, is it just mimetic desire all the way down? Um, so you almost have to start asking some spiritual questions, right? And I think Eastern spirituality, Western spirituality would answer the question differently, different sort of understandings of desire, but in my journey, it was an important part of it. Um, and, you know, I studied classical philosophy. I studied theology um, in a Christian context. And part of this for me was, was about my vocation, right? So I have a fundamental belief that I, I do have a calling and a vocation. Not everybody believes that, right? Um, but if, that, if that's true, and if I, if I have a mission, something that I'm, I'm sort of meant to do in this world because I'm situated in a certain place in time, then the mimetic forces are the things that could um, – well, there's two ways to think of it, right? One way is like we all need models of desire in our life and they could help me understand what my mission is in the first place and kind of where I'm going. And then the other – the flip side of that is um, they can also really pull me off track. If, if, if the wrong models come into my life and make me forget what it was I set out to do in the first place, right? Like here's this social good, this, this thing that I'm trying to do in the world. And all of a sudden somebody with a shiny new car or the, or the new business shows up and I start, you know, I, I lose sight of the path that I was on. So that works in both directions, but for me, um, it's a huge part of it. And then one of the parts of mimetic theory is the role of scapegoating in society and, I like to separate the discussion because it's, it's just a lot when you try to tackle it at one time. Um, but Gerard says that mimetic desire leads to conflict. Basically, it's the source of conflict because we're imitating the desires of other people. We, that brings us into conflict or rivalry with them. And that conflict is typically diffused by finding somebody to blame for, for, the, for the conflict. And it's usually not ourselves. Um, so there's, you know, this, this mimetic theory has a lot of different paths that you can go down. <laughs> and I, I try to touch on all of them in the book just to show people kind of the scope of mimetic theory, even while I focus on mimetic desire the most. That, that makes sense. So you're able to, to work it in with Christianity. 
But I, I do have a question, and, and I, I fully buy into the idea that we want what we're taught to want because it's going to make us have something. And all of Buddha's philosophy, all of Lao Tzu's philosophy is that, oh, if you think you'll be happy when, you're wrong. <laughs> like always, 100% of the time. And if you're earlier in your career and you're listening to this or you're in the Upgrade Collective, we've got people from their teens all the way up into, I think, their 80s. Um, and you see the people who've been around the block, um, usually, like you said, by the time they're in their 30s, they, they've kind of at least started to get a sense of it. But that, no, you're not going to be happy when. So then one of my favorite human beings who's been on the show a couple of times, who's taught me a lot about entrepreneurship is Dan Sullivan. He runs a company called Strategic Coach, and I have more friends than I can count with $50 million plus companies because of his coaching. And this is a guy who's, I believe he's in his late 70s and is planning to live to 150 something. But he says straight up, if you're in one of his classes and he says, why do you want that? And, and people go, I want it because of this, because of that. And he goes, there is no reason. You want it because you want it. Desire is an emotion. It's not a thought, right? And if you want a BMW, right? It's because you want a BMW. It's not because it's going to get me there faster. It's not because I'm going to get laid. It's just because you want it. So there's just an inherent, I don't know why I want it, because it's emotional. And that doesn't jive with mimetic desire, which is a rational thing. Oh, if I have this, I've been taught to want this. If I have this, it's going to give me something. Therefore, I should want this. Therefore, I do want this. And then, you know, you're kind of trapped in this matrix of illusions. So how do you reconcile? I want it because I was taught to want it, which is a mimetic desire, because I see others wanting it. Therefore, I want it. And I just want it because I want it. Yeah, so the I would say that mimetic desire is not a rational um, process at all. Okay. It's, it's actually the opposite of rational um, because the the social process that Girard says forms our desires happens subconsciously. So it's not like um, I I like when I was basically when Tony Shea of of Zappos, the late Tony Shea, rest in peace, was my mimetic model. Um, I it's not as if I realized that at the time, right? And like all of the little ways that I was changing my company culture, I didn't realize that I was imitating him that way until ye- months, maybe even years later. So at the time, um, we're, we're socially influenced in a way that is pre-rational or, or subconscious. Um, and I think that's one distinction that I would make. I didn't know that Sullivan teaches that. That's fascinating that he says, straight up says that uh, in, in the class. So I would be interested in, in his take on where desire comes from then, because that is very different than Girard's idea, right? He would call that the romantic lie, that we always think that our desires are spontaneous, that we just want things when we want them. What, I'm just curious. I mean, what, what is his what is his kind of like understanding of like the seed of desire, right? Is it, is it intellectual? Is it in the will? Does it just arise? It, it, I think he believes it's, it's emotional. So it, it isn't even in the will, uh, but it, it drives with some of the other stuff. So I've had uh, professional dominatrixes on the show. Uh, I had a, a recent podcast where the guy who did the largest survey of fetishes and fantasies in the world, like, I don't know, a huge number of people in the survey and an academic, you know, did a proper study of all this stuff. And 
<laughs> I don't think you can rationally say like why that person wants a spanking and that person, you know, is into Swiss cheese or whatever the heck. I mean, people are weird, right? So I don't know how much of that is mimetic, but maybe it's all mimetic because you saw something when you were two and the Swiss cheese sandwich was really attractive. I, maybe that's all in there, but it seems like there's some level of, I have no idea why, and there isn't a why, but I still want it. Like, why do I like the sunset, right? You can't say why. Why does that painting speak to me and that painting doesn't speak to me? But those are forms of desire. But I don't know. Are they mimetic? Because someone told me I should like that painting. I think that that mimetic desire exists on a spectrum and that there are some things that can't be explained mimetically at all. Um, something, you know, beautiful, uh, like a sunset or like, you know, a beautiful woman that I'm attracted to. There are very clear scientific sort of physiological things going on there, right? Um so we, let's make a distinction. I, I should have said this right up front. Um, mimetic desire is, exists on this spectrum where sort of those kind of like hardwired physiological things like thirst and hunger, those have, have been met, right? And we're sort of now in a more abstract world. Take fetishes and, 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 and things like this, for instance. Like, where did anybody get the idea to do some of these <laughs> fetishes in the first place, right? Did they just wake, a French guy. You know? His name was Marquis de something. (laughs) So by by the way, if anybody wants to go really deep into this, um, in Gerard's magnum opus, things hidden since the foundation of the world, there's a whole section dedicated to, um, sadomasochism. Is there really? (laughs) That's so funny. I, I was randomly bringing that up. That was not, uh, that was not that I've read his, his book, but I do want to say something. I'm kind of making fun of him for being French. Um, because, well, that's just what you do when you're in Canada, but he taught at Stanford, right? Like, like this, this is a, a very well-known, well-respected guy who passed away only in the last, uh, I think six, seven years. Yeah, 2015. So, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. you know, this isn't like 17th century stuff. So some listeners who are unfamiliar with him might have uh, gotten the wrong impression from me. <laughs> yeah. I, we, we should situate him in time. He came to the U S right after world war two and was in the U S the rest of his life. He, he was, you know, spent a lot more time in the U.S. than he did in, in France and taught at Stanford um, for the last, I think, 15 years of his career. So that that adds a, maybe a little bit more relevance for some people. And we've also had Scott Barry Kaufman on the show, who I'm forgetting his university. I want to say Wisconsin or something. I, I don't, I, don't quote me on that. But um, he studied Maslow's works, including all of his unpublished works about the hierarchy of needs and said, oh, uh, he didn't get to finish his book. <laughs> his last hierarchy was for transcendence, which you know maybe ties in with some of um, some of the Christianity side of things. Like this, that that connection to something bigger than yourself is hardwired in our biology. Mm-hmm. And it, it's funny because Renee's work, uh, which is where you know your wanting book is is rooted in, he does say, okay, let's get past the drive for food and sex and, sel- and shelter and security. And that desire happens after your basic needs are met. Except it seems like a lot of the desires I desired, you know, the, the foie gras. <laughs> but my need for food was met by the Alpo, right? I desired the hot sex, but I could have gone and masturbated. I desired the big house, but I have a tent, right? Whatever the thing is. So I, I'm having a hard time really following you know, where, where I draw the line between these two concepts, but it it might be helpful for everyone listening. I think, you know, desire has infiltrated practically everything now. Um, you know, we're not hunter gatherers, right? Where now your desire for, 
um, for some particular, you know, sort of cut of steak, um, you have a need for food because you're hungry. Like we have a need for food, but the desire for a particular brand of water um, or a particular, um, you know, cut of food at, at a particular restaurant. Or like a type of coffee that I used to recommend. Oh, just. Yeah, I have it in my cupboard. <laughs> I just so everybody knows. Um, is, is it has to do with desire. And without, you've done a, you know, frankly, every good entrepreneur or advertiser knows that there need to be solid models of desire for a product. Like most people are not going to buy things just on the, you know, the, the, the scientific evidence alone. Very few people have take the time to actually do the investigation. And if there's somebody that you trust, right, who's modeling that desire, it's think of it almost like a shortcut. You know, it's like a heuristic or a shortcut that people take um, in order to, I mean, the, the world is full of objects of desire. There's too many than any human being could ever pursue. So this is where Gerard's idea of models of desire come in. Um, in a world without models of desire, we just go fucking crazy or something, right? We wouldn't have, you know, we, we sort of need some kind of signpost, some, some people outside of ourselves that we look to, to be able to cut through some of the noise, the information overload, you name it. There's a lot of noise out there and desire exists on this spectrum. So sometimes we can desire things in a highly mimetic way. And sometimes it's less mimetic, right? I mean, I don't, there's not a lot of mimetic desire involved with me wanting to have sex with my wife. Right. So I, you know, I, I think thinking of this on a spectrum, and, unless a lot of story. other people wanted to have sex with your wife, then it would be mimetic, right? Then it would be, then it could be mimetic. And there's a, there's a, there's <laughs> a, there's a confusing. famous, there's, there's a famous psychologist, um, who was a, who was a good friend of Rene Girard, his collaborator. And he would have, um, you know, a, a woman come to him, for instance, and say, look, my, my, my husband doesn't want to have sex with me anymore. Um, he doesn't seem attracted to me anymore at all. And this is pretty controversial, right? I'm not recommending, you know, people go home and do this, but this psychologist having, you know, understood mimetic desire would say, if that's what you want to do, then, uh, you know, find some, you know, attractive man at work, um, that, you know, that desires you and let your husband see that, right? Let, let him see that you're desired by somebody else. So find a pool boy was his advice. Find a, find a pool boy. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> essentially this is, this is basically what he said and, and it, and it could, and it, and it was one way to sort of change that dynamic, right? This is not normative or, or moral advice. This is what he recommended for people that couldn't understand the way that desire, because like desire relies on models and it ebbs and flows depending on the kinds of models that we have in our life. And there's something to be said about, ha about wanting what we, wanting the things that are already in our life. Um, you know, you mentioned the word transcendence earlier and transcendence is in Girard's view is, is what desire at a, at a fundamental level is desire is we all, it's, it's our way of always wanting to transcend where we're currently at. Right. So like desire almost is, is transcendence, right? It's our, it's our need for transcendence. And that can be problematic when we're in a relationship or, you know, we have children, we have a, a family. Um, do we always need to go beyond? And do we always think that the thing that we want is somewhere other than what, what, you know, in our own home or what we already have in our life? Okay. I, I, I get it. And it, perhaps what's most illuminating 
is you have a picture of Maslow's hierarchy of needs without the final step there because that actually isn't in his official hierarchy of needs. But you map it out towards power, prestige, and glory. And what would you say to someone who's saying, just getting going, you know, you're early 20s. And we all have this uh, power, prestige, glory. I'm going to go make my mark in the world and, and all that. What advice would you have given that you've studied all of this and you've lived a similar path to me where, yeah, you've been there, done that. <laughs> what would you say? Yeah. Yeah. I, I teach college freshmen too. And, um, you know, it's it, sometimes people just need to, to do things themselves, right? Um, like not, nothing I say, they'll, they'll never believe it until, right. Until they just walk that path. Um, you know, there's, you know, the Aesop's fable with the sour grapes, right? You have the fox that can't quite reach the grapes. And at a certain point, he just says, fuck it. Like, you know, the grapes must be sour because he can't reach them. So he tells himself the story and he walks away and, you know, lives his happy fox life, right? Um, the problem with the story or the one thing that I would call a- attention to is that the fox was alone. Um, you know, if, if you know, the fox and, you know, forget about the fox, right? When you have a bunch of other people in your life who are your peers, who are the same age, that deeply desire um, something, whether it's good for you or not, it's not that easy to walk away because you're not alone, right? You have, you have these very powerful models and you describe, you know, how that affected you in your early years. Um, and that's, that's challenging, right? Um, so there, there, and I can stand up there all day long and say, look, I, you know, I, I pursued these things. I achieved these things and I was miserable. Like what was missing? I, I try to help them think about the things that are, that are, that they can cultivate in themselves. Things like just basic virtues, right? I think there's a lot of classical wisdom. Certainly the Stoics talked a lot about it, right? Um, things that nobody can take away from you, right? Parts of your character. So some of them are surprised to, you know, enter, a, you know, this introduction to business class and realize that we spend half of the class just talking about the kinds of things that the, the internal framework that they can build that nobody can take away from them. Um, how do we choose goals in the first place? Like, where did your idea of being an investment banker come from in the first place? Right? Like, who's your model for that? Well, that's self-hatred. Isn't, isn't that what drives that? <laughs> what drives that? I mean, I, it was a strong <laughs> one for me, believe me. And, and you know what? When I, when I saw that they would come give us talks at NYU, right. And, you know, here's my life and they look like they were totally exhausted and miserable and, you know, say, you know, I'm working, you know, 80 or 90 hours a week. And I just thought they they were, I mean, there was nothing. And, And I remember one of the guys came in and he said, look, he goes, don't think that my life is necessary. He was an analyst. He was like, don't, don't think that my life is necessarily what you want. Um, I don't want to do this forever. Um, I'm exhausted and you know, the money's just not, it's not worth the 90 hour weeks. I'm not even taking care of myself right now. Yeah. And I remember thinking that that guy was just a, a weak, just, you know, like I, I just, <laughs> n- nothing that he would have ever I said had the to same me, thoughts, <laughs> right? Like what it would have convinced me, right? I just wrote him off completely. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I, there's a, I think there's probably a tendency for younger people to, you know, to, to be dismissive of, of, you know, people that are a little bit older, that have, that have earned their stripes and are trying to say, listen, like probably the more that I tell you that you don't want this thing, the more you're going to want it, you know, it's kind of like kids. Um, but that's what they need to struggle with and, and work out. So, so perhaps, uh, finding a mentor and actually following through, I, I was way too stubborn to have mentors or trust anyone. Like I'll do it all myself, insert Cartman's voice. And 
uh, man, I wish I would have listened because the the people who were willing to listen early on, let's see, Mark Andreessen, um, Mark Zuckerberg, like, like these entrepreneurs who do stupidly well, it's because when they're 23, 24, they found someone 20 years older and listened, right? And uh, suddenly, like they were able to accelerate because they didn't make a lot of the mistakes, uh, certainly the ones that I made. And so that, that could be a part of it. And it, it's funny, I I noticed by the time I was 30 that every investment banker, uh, you know, graduate I knew, and every uh, management consultant, these are all 90-hour weekends, they were all miserable, they all hated their lives, they all quit, or they made partner in five years. And if they made partner, they basically made huge amounts of money, and then alcohol, drugs, and divorce. <laughs> They've ruined their lives over this, like, blah, those look gross, but they look like kind of fun jobs, but I'm not willing to do it. Uh, and so maybe I had some wisdom there, but no mentor told me that. It might have just been inherent laziness. Which brings me to the point. What is the role of laziness in mimetic desire? The desire to not waste time doing stuff that you don't have to do. The desire for laziness or the desire to not be lazy? Well, the, the desire to actually not waste time on crap. Right. So mm-hmm. laziness means I didn't want to do it. Like I wanted to do less work. And I, I feel like a lot of people actually want to do less work. You didn't want to do <laughs> the investment yeah. banker thing, right? Because you want right. to do less work. At least at right. a certain point you got there. Right. Yeah. You know, and that, um, I mean, I think this is a, there's a, it's, this comes down to balance and, and, and health and balance in life in general. But I didn't have a model for a balanced life in my early years, right? There was, there was simply no model. I went to undergrad NYU business school, which is notoriously brutal, right? Um, I, I did I Wharton, imagine, so we're, we've got our similar, yeah. Yeah, I doubt it's very, very different. Um, and here's the thing. I don't know if you had this experience uh, as an entrepreneur, but, and I don't know what your companies, I don't know what Trend Micro was like, but when you're in the corporate world, there are kind of very easily identifiable next steps, Oh yeah. And, There's a, a, a ladder that everyone does. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, as a, as a entrepreneur, as a founder, as a CEO, um, it's not quite so clear. I mean, like there are obvious things, right? You want to be a pro you want to be profitable. You want to increase the valuation of your company. There are certain things that you want to do, but it, it, it's a little more ambiguous. And I think it requires a lot more discipline, frankly, to, you know, to say when, when is enough enough? What am I really out to do here? Um, and for that, I didn't have any kind of models of health. I didn't have any models of like healthy family life, for instance, until I got to be in my late twenties you know, how it took that long, I have no idea. So one, one of my pieces of advice for young, for my students, for young people is, you know, don't just wait for a, a mentor, somebody that you really respect holistically, not just in one domain. Um, sure. We can have like role models in different areas of our life, one for, you know, one for our work life, one for our family life, whatever. But you should also have a holistic model and don't wait for it just to fall into your lap. You should actually be intentional about going out there and trying to find it. Because for me, it didn't come into my life until I was 29 years old, which was about 11 years too late. Um, right. You know, uh, my parents are great, but I went, I left, went to college and, and you know, they were, they were, you know, they, I, I found all, I found every mod- model imaginable but not the kinds that would would help me understand how to be an entrepreneur and be healthy at the same time. 
And there's a real problem with, with that, right? With mental health, with, with just, you know, not knowing how to, how to balance these things. And I mean, I, I know I don't have to tell you that, but it's, you know, I just didn't have any, anybody that modeled that for me. There are vanishingly few happy entrepreneurs, right? And I mean, it, it's taken me a while to get to that point. It's a lot easier when you're happy, but I mean, I remember the first time I, I sat down and, and I go, I just raised a bunch of money and I looked at it and I go, holy shit. Like my net worth just crossed $10 million. Right? And you're like, wow, like that's awesome. Um, by the way, guys, you can't believe anything you see on the internet. Um, the internet thinks I'm a billionaire and that is so far from reality, uh, but I'm remarkably comfortable compared to where I was 10 years ago. And I'm freaking grateful for that. But I sat there, I'm like, who am I going to tell? Right. And the bottom line is, you're surrounded by people with mimetic desire and there's another name, maybe not for it directly, but it's mostly envy and greed. So you're like, I'm not going to go bragging about this. Right. Of course, here I'm talking about on the show because I, I don't know, I believe in full transparency, but um, you know, at the time I'm like, all right, you know, who do I, you know, who do I share this with? Like, how do I do that? So there's a loneliness that comes with financial success. There's loneliness that comes with being at the top and they didn't teach me any of that in business school at all. Right. And that's the hard stuff. So what you find is entrepreneurs, um, they'll, they'll kind of band together and we go to these stupidly expensive masterminds. Um, just because if it's stupidly expensive, it means that um, the other people in the room are probably at a similar level of success and it might be a safe place to talk about stuff that no one in your family would understand. And none of your friends from college would understand. So yeah, that, that loneliness is built in and no one ever says anything about it. What is, What's your recommendation? I mean, you, you talk with freshmen in college all the time. You've been there as much as I have. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, uh, envy is the, is a taboo subject to talk about. And that's why you never hear anybody talk about the word. Um, you know, Gerard famously said, um, the reason that everybody talks about sex today is because nobody wants to talk about their envy. Um, you know, and, uh, I think there's probably a little bit of truth to that, right? Um, you know, these secret desires that we have to bury that are underground. Um, I think there's a difference between, between jealousy and envy. And, you know, the, one of the ways that I think about it is like this, right? Um, jealousy could be a positive thing in the sense that like, you know, Dave has something that I want. It's this good thing, this relationship. Like I should want that, right? That's an example of healthy mimetic desire, right? But it, the the envy, sort of my definition of envy is not wanting somebody else to have something good that they have, right? So it's not about me just wanting to share in some good. It's about me not wanting somebody else to have something. That's one way I think I, I draw a distinction between the two. Um, so many entrepreneurs that I know, spend so much time and not just entrepreneurs. We just happen to be entrepreneurs, but I think this applies to anybody. I mean, I'm also, I have one foot in academia, so I'm at a university and this is as bad inside the education system as it is probably worse than it is among entrepreneurs. And the constant looking to what other people are doing or saying or wanting or achieving um, is the, just the fastest way to be miserable for one thing but also the fastest way to miss opportunities because um, we're just constantly looking to our right and our left rather than forward or up. Um, and it's destroyed more companies than I know. I mean, people think like a lot of companies don't make it because of competition from the outside. I think that I literally know more companies that have failed due to internal collapse because, you know, there was just like internal 
problems that you know people couldn't solve, right? Co-founders couldn't get along. There was jealousy and envy. And um, that is something that I really encourage um, you know, the, the, the handful of, of younger entrepreneurs that I mentor and my students to understand, you know, what, you know, they'll come to me, for instance, their, you know, freshman year uh, with high, high, high anxiety about what internship they're going to have that summer. And I'm just like, so wh- where did you get the idea that you need an internship? This summer? <laughs> um, you know, you're- that was the mimetic <laughs> desire, classical example. Like, I, I know I want it because I was told I had to, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, my heart kind of goes out to him, right? And it's like, you know, I, and I, I try to say, you know, if you if you continue to look at what everybody else um, is telling you that you should be doing this summer, you're, there's really no end to that game. You'll be doing it when you're 40. You're just going to find more ingenious ways to play the same game. Um, so you're going to have to learn right now. It's never too early to learn how to not play that game. Um, and and recognize the, see, because there's two different kinds of models. And Gerard talks about this. There are the kinds that are far away from us. That's sort of like that. We typically refer to them as role models. They're kind of in a different sphere. We don't really, they're not close to us. We don't come into contact with them, but then there are the people influencing our desires that are very close to us. Um, they could be in our family. They could be our, our, in our company. Um, you know, they could be, you know, whatever fellow podcasters or something. Right. Um, and we're just, we're, we're usually less likely to acknowledge the second kind, which, you know, Gerard calls internal mediators of desire because they're inside of our world. And we don't like to acknowledge the, the internal influence that they have on us. I, I think there, there is a core nugget in what you're saying there that, yep, uh, that, that is what's really happening. And in wanting you go all the way back to early childhood, which made me really happy because a lot of the work that I do with entrepreneurs at 40 years of Zen, this is my neuroscience thing. It, you go in for a brain upgrade to make your brain perform better. And you realize that a lot of the voice in your head, a lot of things sucking energy are very old programming that you're not at all conscious of. And some of it's wanting, some of it's trauma. And you go in and, and there's states where you can edit this stuff. But you talk about some things that are really interesting that we only learned over the past few decades around mimetic theory and things like joint visual attention. What is joint visual attention? What is the role of early, early infant childhood and wanting stuff as adults? Sure. Um, the, I think the world's leading thinker on this is Dr. Andrew Metzoff at the University of Washington. Um, and he, he runs a neuroscience and childhood development center at the, at the university with his wife. And he's got um, crazy multi-million dollar machines where he studies the electromagnetic field around infants' brains, right? We actually have a magnetic force. An that, MEG, that yeah. Yeah, yeah, MEG. And um, I, I can't pronounce whatever it stands for, but um, it is um, very impressive. And, and he's been studying um, the brains of infants and fascinating studies. And there's a couple of things to note here. One is how, how the role of imitation in children probably starts uh, before the children are even born or the second that they're born. And to give you one example, the children of mothers who speak different languages come out of the womb quite literally crying in different ways because they're imitating wow. the intonations of their mother's voice that they heard during the last trimester while they were in the womb. So a, the, the, the child of a, of a Chinese woman 
will come out of the womb crying differently than the child of a, of a, of a German mother because the Chinese is a highly tonal language. That's fascinating. Yeah. So they immediately are, are, have already learned to imitate things like language and, and voice and intonation within, within minutes or hours they're, they perform what's called joint visual attention. And Metzoff has studied this extensively, where the child follows the gaze of a parent. Um, in the studies, it was usually the mother. So if the mother looks at something, the child's eyes look at the mother's eyes, because I mean, pretty much the baby just knows how to, uh, to stare up into the mother's eyes, right? But the baby looks at, notices that the mother's eyes are looking at some object, okay? And immediately starts to learn that the the baby should take an interest in that object too. Obviously, you know, this is not a rational process, but that joint visual attention, the child takes an interest in an object because the mother had an interest in the object. So that right there is a little early indication of what might develop into mimetic desire as adults. It, isn't that the paired with like a smile or some other indication that it's good versus bad? Because you look at a tiger, right? And you look at candy or whatever. Uh, and, and one of those is, is more attractive than the other. So they're reading the whole face, right? They're reading the whole face and, and all of the cues matter. Oh, wait, hold on. They're not doing that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and. And the, and the fascinating thing is they don't do this with a non-human. It has to be a human. So the same thing, if they're looking at a robot um, or they're looking at an animal, they don't, they don't gaze follow. It has to be a human. So Metzoff says that it seems like we come out of the womb recognizing that this creature is like me, even though they've never seen themselves before. You know, they've never looked in a mirror. They somehow already sense this that, that we're the same and they yeah. only gaze follow with, with the mother. And this is fascinating because, you know, if in, uh, in Proust, uh, in, in, in Marcel Proust, in his novels, um, I, by the way, um, I've never gotten through any of his books. They're extremely difficult to read. Thank you. Thank you. My wife loves Proust. I, I I've never gotten me. through more than a chapter. I want to put him in a wood shredder. It's like the worst waste of paper ever, if I can just say that. But you might love them anyway. No, I mean, Pr- Proust is one of those books that people like to say that they've read because you're supposed to have read it or something like it's that. It's horrible. Right? It's, it's, it's brutal. But what, he, what I, ha- I, I only know this because I did a ton of research for the book. In his novels, um, he, he always has this he always takes note of a character's eyes and what the character is looking at. Um, and then another character picks up on what that character is looking at, just like the babies do. So that this is one of the books that Gerard said he sees mimetic desire all over the place. It almost seemed like Proust had some, you know, implicit idea of kind of how, how we work, right? Uh, lots of other studies that Metzoff did. And I think one of the, one of the other fascinating ones is, uh, with within a matter of months, uh, babies can read beneath the surface, uh, the, the surface level. So they can not only imitate external things, facial expressions, language. You know, if you stick out your tongue at a baby, it can stick out its tongue back at you. But they start reading beneath the surface actions and can seem to read desires or intentions. So hmm. in a in a famous study that he did, he took some adults. 
put him in a room with a bunch of toddlers and he had the adults act like they were trying to uh, basically do something, but they, they, they failed to, to basically do it. So when they left the toddlers alone in the room is like, pull the ends off, off, off a toy dumbbell or something like that. And when they left the toddlers alone in the room, they, they didn't imitate what the adults did. They imitate, imitated what they knew the adults were trying to do. And other studies have shown that the, the toddlers are able to read way beneath the surface actions and imitate the, basically the intentions or the desires. And Girard's hypothesis is that as adults, we just do this at a far more sophisticated level. Mm. What people say, what people show us they want, um, we can usually see right through them, right? And, you know, this happens in, in sort of dating all the time, right? We can read beneath the surface. Uh, I think women are probably better at men doing this, frankly, right? Like read beneath the surface and, and intuit the intentions or the desires, no matter how hard we try to mask it. That, that's why I like to have at least half my senior executive team be women. <laughs> Sorry, men and women are different. It's kind of weird, but I, I, I believe that. <laughs> I, I do. It's, it's just the principle of complementarity, right? Yeah. You know, we make each other better. Um, and I, I try to follow the same, same rule. You talk in wanting about the mesmerization of Steve Jobs. And of course, he's one of the most worshipped entrepreneurs of, of, the, of the recent history times. Tell me about mesmerization. What is that? What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. So that word comes from uh, a guy named Mesmer, <laughs> yep. who, um, you know, this is it's a fascinating story. I mean, he basically um, would, um, he, he had patients and tried sort of a new form of therapy where he would literally try to mesmerize them um, through literally like fit physical manipulating their bodies in, in, in sort of physical ways and, and placing different magnetic objects around them um, to try to affect their psychology. Um, and this has been sort of disproven, but the term mesmerize um, sort of implies that there's almost like some force that's as some almost a physical, right? Like gravity. There's almost like some kind of a force that's acting on us that mesmerizes us of the basis of hypnotism, right? It's like this, it's almost like we can't help ourselves. There's a force that's acting on us. Um, and in the book, you know, I tell the story about how Steve Jobs met uh, a guy in college at Reed who became one of his best friends, Robert Friedland. And the first time that he met Friedland, he went to go, he was listed as typewriter for sale. And the guy that bought it was Friedland. And he walked into this guy's room. He didn't know him at the time. And Friedland is just having sex with his girlfriend on the bed. 
And Jobs was kind of mortified at first, right? He's like, this is far out. I've never seen anybody. Because <laughs> Friedland just seemed very casual. He just said, well, why don't you just come in and sit down and wait until we finish? And Jobs This is like did, in the 70s, obviously, or 60s or something, okay? Yeah, I think it was in the 70s. And Jobs describes himself as being totally mesmerized by Friedland. And he's just kind of this larger-than-life figure that just seemed to play by different rules than anybody else. And, you know, Jobs' later friends would say that Friedland exerted this crazy, mesmerizing force on Jobs. And it was that – the relationship with Friedland made Jobs realize that he could sort of begin to uh, begin to do the same thing for other people. Okay, And it's when they said that he – he sort of invented the reality distortion field that yeah. sort of Jobs is is known for, right? Like he just seemed to be living in a different reality, and other people that came into contact with him were kind of caught up in the reality distortion field and probably projected all kinds of things onto him. He's kind of a mythological figure, right? I mean, like who knows who Walter Isaacson wrote a great book about Steve Jobs, but I I still don't know if I really understand who Steve Jobs Steve Jobs was, right? Um, he's just this mythological, mythological, mesmerizing figure, and they make for powerful models uh, of desire. You know, it's like Elizabeth Holmes, right? Like she was, Jobs was a model for her. She's her trial that started this week, um, and she in turn mesmerized a bunch of other people to the tune of seven hundred million dollars. <laughs> you know, so you know people play these these kind of games, personality sort of cult of personality games all of the time, and. In the book, I just talk about how these people make really easy models of desire. Because it's like, what does this person have that I don't have that makes them either so confident, so sure of themselves? They don't seem to care about the, the things that other people care about. Um, they seem to desire differently. And that's kind of that, – that, that's what makes them such fascinating figures. It, it's interesting because you talk about how – uh, the Gnostics, and by the way, a lot of people don't, in fact, I don't know if I've ever even talked about this. I was one class away from a minor in religious studies in my undergrad. Um, and that was simply because I was studying computer science and I kind of sucked at it and I could get A's in religious studies because how hard could it be? I mean, it's all debatable and computer science was not debatable. So I was padding my GPA with religious studies classes, just fully started, but I learned a lot and I was fascinated by the Gnostics in like the 14th century to 16th century, if I'm remembering the dates right. And they just thought that you there's predominating ignorance. And if we evolve our consciousness, um, that's great. And that there's messengers of light who would do this. So there's more enlightened people who kind of share stuff. Uh, my path ever since then, I know people who are more enlightened than me. I seek them out. I interview them on the show. Sometimes they're experts and sometimes they're guys like uh, Dr. Barry Morgulon. Um, this is the first podcast he ever did. I'm like the direct oral lineage of Lao Tzu handed down through one monastery. I'm like, okay, that's cool. I'm going to learn from, <laughs> from Dr. Barry, right? There's, and there's just countless people like that out there. And so my path has been, you know, like, guys, tell me what to do so I can save time and energy because I'm not going to do it all myself. So I'm a, you call me a, a modern Gnostic and you write about that in there and you call it the cult of experts. And, and now I have to ask you the, the real money question here because I'm going to read two sentences from <laughs> the cult of experts part of wanting 
do you drink regular coffee? Then you obviously haven't read Dave Asprey, who knows that the beans you drink are covered in molds that produce mycotoxins, and you should buy his Bulletproof coffee to save yourself from the fate of plebeian coffee drinkers who are ignorant of this. Now, was that actually there as a cult of experts, or were you just trying to get on the show? <laughs> I'm messing with you. <laughs> trying, to, trying to get on the show. I'm glad no. we made it happen. Yeah. I'm totally messing well, me, with you. <laughs> no, no, no. Let me, so let me, uh, let me frame that up. And I didn't know that about you, about the religious studies. That's, that's fascinating. So the, there are many people mentioned in that chapter. Oh, tons, uh, tons. I, yeah. Tons, right? <laughs> Tim, Tim Ferriss, uh, Dax Shepard. Um, I mean, I could have named a, a thousand, right? So There's the, tons of experts the, out there, yeah. There's tons of experts out there. So here's, here's kind of what I was, what I'm trying to get at. Um, the, you know, and the pandemic, I think has really, um, exacerbated this, right? Because it seems like people are very sort of confused about authority and who to trust. Mm-hmm. And there's been a loss of trust, right. And, and credibility. And it's like, everybody kind of has their, you know, their own experts, um, the people that they look to. And, um, and the experts are sort of mediated to us through layers and layers and layers of stuff, right? It could be, um, the internet, (laughs) you know, um, you know, it's not exactly known as a source of trustworthy. I mean, it's, first of all, it's information overload. So there's layers and layers of, of mediation. It used to be experts. I mean, the, the word expert basically comes from a Latin word that means, you know, someone who's like experienced, at their craft, right? So like, you're like a woodworker. I could sit there and watch you carve wood or stone and be like, well, shit, that guy's an expert. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? I'm looking at it with my own eyes and I can see that this person is an expert. In 2021, it's not like that. Okay. Um, And it's one of the, like anybody can basically sort of claim expert status and um, I think it's sort of, it, it, you know, we, we don't have the, there's so many layers and layers of mediation, right? Um, and it's basically sort of like left everybody in sort of a, a state of confusion. Yeah. Who are the models? Who are the models to look to? And one of the things I think we need to do, and there's sort of a Lindy effect here, right? Like time will tell. Yep. Time will tell who the experts are. And the encouragement in the book is, listen, do the work, right? So if, if there's um, a person out there um, who all of your friends listen to or trust, um, you should also take the time to do the work to investigate the, the, the claims, um, to find out you know, wh- where this person is coming from. Basically, don't trust the news um, and don't just trust, don't just, don't just give them authority because other people give them authority. Authority is fine. Um, you know, we need people with authority. Um, but how, how do we give it in the culture that we live in? I think oftentimes authority is given mimetically. It's like mimetically derived authority. And, um, you know, I think we need to sort of cut through that. And people don't want to do the work because it's easier to just sort of trust the crowd. I don't know that I'm with you on that. Uh, there, like you said, there's information overload. There was a time in the early days of the internet where I actually knew the whole internet. I could read all of Usenet because it was small and I was in college and I had lots of time working in the computer labs. 
Okay. <laughs> and I got really stressed when the growth of the web, when the first browsers came out, it was faster than I could read. I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I don't know everything. Okay. That was pathological and dysfunctional, but we're still to that point. So I cultivate friends who are experts. Like I have a friend, he does every bit of ridiculous research on tractors and pickup trucks. So I called him and I said, thinking about getting a truck. And he goes, oh, you need to go buy the Ford F-150 with this engine and that. And it's been, oh, great. And I went to the dealer and I said, I'm going to buy this truck for this much money. <laughs> and I saved myself like 40 hours of research because he was believable and trustworthy. And that believability score um, is something that comes from, oh, geez, I'm forgetting the guy's name. Um, the guy who runs a, like the largest investment bank thing out there. Someone in the Upgrade Collective is going to tell me what I'm talking about. Um, I've talked about his book, Bill Gates likes his book, and I'm blanking on his name. Anyway, um, a believability score says, okay, how believable is a person, right? And someone with high believability because they're an expert in a field, because they've done the work, can save you so much time that it's okay to place trust. Where I think the frictions happened is there's actually, run by a friend of mine, uh, a training course called the Expert Academy, right? Which is to teach you how to be an expert. And I've always been kind of stuck on that because if you're not an expert and you learn how to be an expert, you're still not an expert. So like step one, have expertise. Step two, learn how to share expertise. But if you go straight to the front of the line and say, I'm going to share expertise, it seems like that's what's happened online. So you don't know if that's a, a real Instagram account. You know anything. And I'm confused by it all, but I have enough resources to do the research myself. What do you recommend for someone who's 20 and, and is like completely stuck with this? How, how do you know if someone's believable and trustworthy? I, the word belief is really important. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I think we believe people. Um, we believe people bottom line, right? Like, but like b belief is between people, not information, not, not data. We believe it because of a person, right? Because of where it came from. Um, what you just said about sort of the, the expertise and skipping the line. I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Like it's just, you, you want to be considered an expert because you did the work, not because you took a class on how to be an expert, right? It's like the people that want to be, um, that want to be humbler than everybody else, right? It's almost like there's this ironic contradiction in terms, right? You mm -hmm. know, you, you get to be humble or you get to be an expert, because you went through this long process and you earned it, you know, you didn't just hack expertise. Um, and I'll give you, this is a great example. I just remembered this actually. I was think, thinking to myself, when's the first time that I ever tried bulletproof coffee? And I have it in my cupboard right now. And it was six years ago is the first time that I drank it. And uh, I'll tell you exactly who, who recommended it. It was my friend, David Jack, who's a pretty well-known um, fitness trainer personality works with Reebok a lot. He's in men's health. He has a lot. the perfect name. He's like, I'm literally jacked. David I mean, like Jack. it's as good as it gets. <laughs> he looks like Captain America, man. He's like six, four. He is jacked. He's, he's incredible, nice. but I believe him. And I went over to his house. I went over to his house in Phoenix and he pulled a bunch of weird stuff out of the cupboard and said, I'm going to make you bulletproof. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And I watched him make it and I was fascinated and you know, I've, I've drank, drank it ever since, right? Not every day, but I drink it. I have it in my cupboard. Um, I should, uh, but it was because of him. It was because of him. And I believe David because he did the work and he does the work that either I don't have time to do, right. that I'm not invested in doing or whatever. And I trust David on, I trust him on a lot of most domains of life. 
and health and nutrition and fitness is sure as hell one of them. And that, that is, I think, an example. And to this day, have I ever, you know, investigated myotoxins or any of that? No. And I don't really feel like I've, I need to. It's not, it's, not your, it's not your highest and best use of your time, right? <laughs> no, it's not. So I think, we're, I think we're actually saying something pretty similar, right? Like we, we do rely. And, and how do you become believable? How do you become trustworthy? Well, it's like a, a whole body of work. You know, you can't earn my trust or my belief in uh, a day, right? It's something that, that happens yeah. over a long period of time. It's a consistency thing, and uh, I'm I'm with you there. So I I I know the people that I go to, a lot of the university researchers and all, and this is something that they didn't teach in uh, my undergrad or anywhere else. But it's something that I think you've come across, and I would love to share with our listeners. And, and it doesn't matter where you are in life, cultivating what uh, what the Colby score, which Dan Sullivan talks about, it is called fact finders. And there's four keys. This is one of the many different things like Myers-Briggs, but the Colby score will tell you some people, and who knows, maybe it's based on mimetic desire, but some people, in order to make a decision, they have to have a lot of facts, right? And it's a scale from zero to nine, I think, or maybe 10, whatever. But the, the bottom line is some people don't need any facts to make a decision. Some people just naturally have to have everything. Have a few friends who are the ones who just go out there and vacuum up data, process it, and know their domain of expertise. And they will save you hundreds of hours and keep you from making stupid mistakes. Because if I went out to research trucks, I would not have come up with as good of an answer as my friend and it was on it was ready, right? So uh, I consciously do that. I know the people I call. And some of them have been on the show, like my friend Mike Koenix, um, who wrote a book, I think I interviewed about cancer and surviving cancer, even though he's a, a very powerful entrepreneur and media marketing guy. Well, if I need video equipment for my studio, I just call him up because he knows it, right? And likewise, people say, Dave, I want my brain to work. I've, I've, I have my domain I talk about on the show, and I've done 10 years. We're going on a 10-year anniversary. At this point, I'm either believable or I'm not, right? But if I was starting new, it would take me years to get to that point. And so I just want everyone listening here to say, all right, how do you know? And, and one of the things I do here is before you get on the show, like, okay, go through your book do all the research. So I'm hoping that just by spending an hour with us today, you're saying, all right, a degree of filtering happened that you don't know about. But what I don't know here is, am I casting a mesmerization field the way you talk about it in the book, because I'm an expert? Walk me through that because there are other experts who listen to the show too. Like, are we all doing this and we don't know it? Yeah, I know. I mean, Joe Rogan comes oh, to yeah. mind, right? You know, just li listen to Joe Rogan, and you'll you'll you know you'll get everything. And that's a joke, um, <laughs> but you know, I I it's like who who knows, right? I mean, there's certainly something going on. I mean, people matter, personalities matter. Um, there's aesthetic things that influence you know the way that we take in information. There's a level of show business to to these things, right? And you know, if I'm going to give a TED talk on the topic of mimetic desire. Um, you know, I'm going to make sure that it's a production mm -hmm. because it, 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 it does change the, the way that people sort of perceive it. You know, it doesn't seem sloppy. seems like I know what I'm talking about, right? I think the, the, the challenge is knowing, well, knowing sort of how to separate the wheat from the chaff is one thing, right? But how to see through bullshit, but separate almost the uh, cult of personalities or aesthetics or show business or, or whatever. Yeah. 
Um, you can make a good or celebrity. Yeah. I mean, you can make a documentary that's beautifully made, um, very good cinematography production and writing. And it sounds very author- authoritative. That's just total uh-huh. bullshit. Right. And that's just very manipulative. I mean, and almost every documentary made these days has some kind of agenda. I mean, if you look under the surface, you know, it's always presented as, you know, we're just but like what the health and game changers. Those are those are animal rights propaganda. God damn it. Well, I'll just say it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we have it as mature adults. I think we you know, we've got to be able to beauty is a funny thing, right? Because beauty both can, I think, lead us to truth. Uh, and beauty can lead us astray when it's super, when it's, you know, glamour can deceive. So beauty is almost a, a double-edged sword. When I say beauty, I just mean the, the aesthetics, right? You know, in Italian, you know, we call it the, the bella figura. Um, and some people can get by and go a long ways in life with just the, the bella figura, right? Um, but there's not a lot of substance, substance there. So I, um, you know, I, I, I just think that's a skill that they don't teach you in school. Um, you know, one of the things I do with my students is they, we literally watch commercials and, um, you know, they try, try to get under the surface of like what it's doing to them in real time in, in like re- real time sort of feedback about what's going on emotionally and psychologically as they're watching these. And, uh, there's a skill that we can develop, call it, call it a habitus, like a habit where we can sort of see what's going on in, in us as we're, you know, listening to somebody or, or absorbing something. And then we can create some critical distance where we can actually evaluate um, when we're not maybe, let's say, under the influence of all of those other factors that might bend um, our perception of reality. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does make sense. So, so you, you got to watch out. You know, is it celebrity or is it true expertise? And you know, when you ask your favorite you know, baseball player about their political pick, <laughs> honestly like who cares because they're probably not an expert but people still do that all the time well I, th- there's a little known um um story from um ancient rome and there was a like a little known author researcher who was out there saying that there's mercury in pewter which is making people's brains sick and it turns out that's one of the theories about what brought rome down and there was a a more famous guy named Joas Roganus, um, who was uh, <laughs> who went out there and and said that it couldn't possibly be true because he was selling uh, a competing mercury free uh, pewter. Now in in this in this environment, he went out to cancel the mercury guy and you know went after you know public rec- reputation all that sort of stuff. Um, and the reason I'm asking this is about bullying and cancel culture. Right, because it gets used, and when we're talking about mimetic desire, it feels like there's a, a kind of you put someone on a pedestal, right? And then someone, sometimes big media will do it, sometimes big pharma will do it, sometimes a celebrity like Joe's Roganus uh, will do this in ancient Rome. But whatever the situation is, there, what's happening with the sudden flip where suddenly someone who was there and was an object of desire or a, a, a credible person gets just flipped. What's your experience from looking at Renee's work? Mm. 
I, I thought the Joe, Joe's Roganess was a joke. I thought that was literally, it's literally a guy's name. I thought that was a Joe it Rogan. It totally joke. was. Joe um, Rogan came after me, tried to okay. cancel me when he invested in a company <laughs> copying my shit. <laughs> and he even deleted all three episodes when I was on his show. When he went over to Spotify, he's trying to hide it, but I have him recorded. It's all, it's all funny, but no, it really was. So you got the joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got, I got the joke. Okay. Okay. I started, well, I questioned myself. I was like, wait a second. Is this yeah, that's just um, my sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm, that's, that just shows what kind of a history nerd I am. I'm like, I'm going to go read this story. In, in I said it Rome. up well. I lived in Rome for a few years. So you set it up really, really well. Uh, here, here's what I think is going on, or this is, this is Gerard's take too. Um, mimetic desire sort of creates, um, creates outliers, right? Um, and, they, those outliers are created because of this sort of convergence of desire. Contagious desire creates an outlier or a king or a president or a what, whatever. And when the, think about it, right? So like mimetic desire is contagious desire that converges on some, someone or something and kind of the, the, it is, it is accelerates. And when things go wrong, when there's a crisis, uh, it, it operates the same way. So the blame converges on one person or one group. And this is called the scapegoat mechanism. And it works through that mimetic process. Um, and it's kind of why, um, you know, outliers are the easiest people to converge on because they're just, they're the first people that you, that you sort of notice or that, you know, people notice and, you know, you can point to them and say, they're not like us and, and they, they're converged around and, and canceled. So it could be, you know, somebody says something that's threatening in some way. Um, and very quickly, um, there's a convergence of accusation around that mm-hmm. person. And the people that are caught up with the accusation are, are doing it mimetically, right? I mean, they haven't, they, they may have not been offended personally, Right. I mean, they just sort of like they wouldn't maybe they wouldn't even know about this. Right. Unless, you know, they'd been sort of somehow caught this anger by contagion. Joint visual attention sort of thing, like like they see someone they trust looking and frowning. And so they do it, too. Or is it another layer? Um, I think that was it's fascinating to think about how that works on social media. Right. With retweets. You know, like we all, we've always had cancel culture. Okay. Like in the ancient world it's called. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. And, and, and the, you know, the, the first stone is always the hardest one to throw. And why? Because it's the only stone without a model. The second stone has one model. The third stone has two models and so on and so forth. So the 10th, 11th and 12th stone are really, really easy to throw. And now jump forward to 2021, you know, when we just have uh, social media, cancel culture, by the time you get to the 10,000s, you know, accusation or, or whatever, or block um, or cancel, it just, it's incredibly easy to do. I mean, it's, it's almost just like a knee jerk mimetic kind of, you know, for some people, not for everybody, but you have to wonder how much of cancel culture is driven by mimesis, even while the, the 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 veneer is that well this we're just serving justice here, right? Um, well, that's what everybody thinks that they're doing when they do when they when they commit violence against somebody else, right? And they always think that it's proportional to the crime. 
Um, and that's, that's an illusion. And this is kind of a summary of chapter four of wanting, uh, where you talk about the memetics of stoning, but it's such a good example and the invention of blame and all of that. So I just, in, in terms of developing self-awareness, it's a really interesting book. It's like, oh my God, there's a lot of stuff that I'm doing that I don't really know why or how, but it all made sense until I thought about it. And then it suddenly collapsed. So I, I actually really appreciated that one. That was why I asked the Joas Ruggenis question to set you up. So, uh, but that, that whole chapter I'd found fascinating in it. So let's get down to, to brass tacks as we, we get to the end of the show. You're somewhere in your life and you're saying, you know, all right, I acknowledge that three quarters of my desire is mimetic. It's stuff that someone taught me at some point in my life without my knowledge or permission to desire. And I'm done with this shit. What do I do to stop desiring things that I didn't decide to desire? Mm. Yeah. How can you develop some anti-mimetic, you know, machinery um, in your guts to help do that? I think the first thing is just awareness, right? Now, hopefully everybody who's listened to this conversation has some awareness um, that it's that this is real, that this is part of kind of human nature, I would say. That's my argument in the book. Um, and if you are willing to accept that it's part of human nature, that that we are imitative creatures and that we're mimetic, then you probably um, are mimetic in, 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 a, in a few different ways, right? This is not a monolithic thing. There's probably positive ways that you're mimetic, right? Like you have a, a positive model for wellness in your life. Um, so I like, you got to separate them out. Um, those you might want to lean into that, right? Or if you don't have a positive model for wellness, you might want to get one because it's really hard to desire it without a, a powerful model in your life, somebody to help you, whether that's your spouse or a good friend or a community. Like a vegan endurance athlete or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, and that's why I think communities, I mean, like, like, like yours, are, are important, right? It, it actually helps. It really helps um, when you're when you're doing it with other people, and uh, but you probably have some negative ones yeah. too, right? And um, you know, t- today there's, um, you know, politics just comes to mind, right? But I mean, everybody has to answer this question for themselves. You know, in in what cases am I being pulled along um, and getting angry or upset or you know, whatever it is without having been fully in self-possession and intentional every step of the way. And when you just increase your awareness, for, you just have to identify the domain of your life where you, you this may be a problem, right? So maybe it's not politics. Maybe it's some something totally unrelated. Um, how can you catch it early? Because it's a lot easier to catch it early when you sort of feel that it's almost like physics. You almost feel the tug of, of mimesis on the, on the front of your shirt. Um, but not a lot of people f- recognize the feeling. And there's something to be said about recognizing the feeling and extracting yourself from that situation. I mean, it could mean literally um, not being on certain social media platforms, not reading certain news, cleansing yourself from some of the things that are exerting tremendously negative mimetic forces on you. And almost, you know, just taking yourself away from that. And that's when I described earlier in the show, those three months that I had, part of the reason why those, that time was really important for me, it was because it was the first time that I'd created any distance for myself from all of the forces. So I stepped back, I went on a silent retreat. I was, you know, I I did a lot of, I meditated, I did a lot of things and where I was able to see for the very first time 
the way that I was being affected and influenced um, in all those different kinds of ways. So, you know, I'm a big fan of, of, you know, wh- however you want to do it, of taking some time to, to, to pull away and gain some perspective because it's really hard to do while you're like caught up in it. You know, it's, it's, you almost have to create like physical space in order to be able to see it. Yeah. Sometimes having thinking time is, is important. And now this is a guy I haven't interviewed, but uh, I've chatted with a few times and it's a book called the road, less stupid. (laughs) This guy has been a board member like you and me started multiple companies. And he says, look, non-negotiable an hour a day of thinking time. He has like a special chair that he goes and he sits in and like, that's where he does his thinking. Like to, to your point that, that at some point you have to have a, a way to, to have that self-reflection and to step back. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, 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 at least an hour a day is what I do. And I, in fact, you know, one of the things that I like to do is just my personal thing is every once in a while, my wife and I, my wife works in food um, and we both like to cook and we enjoy, we eat together all the time, but every once in a while, I love nothing more than to just take like a meal alone. And I find it's where I have like these, I don't really believe in the saying like never eat alone. It's I have like these huge bursts of creativity because I'm sitting there with, you know, sensory stuff going on. I can just observe stuff going on. And I always have a notepad with me because that's just seems to be for me when I'm able to unplug and I just, these, my brain starts making connections. But if I'm constantly trying to engage in conversation I, I, it's like I'm missing something. Well mind. said. I, I love it that you brought that up uh, at the end of the interview. Uh, Keith Ferrazzi, uh, who, if memory serves, is the author of Never Eat Alone, um, is a friend and a really interesting guy. Uh, but there is a case for what you just said. And, and there's such a thing as you know sitting meditation. There's also a walking meditation. And an eating meditation is something that you actually experience if you do um, Art of Living, the breathing technique from India, which is a, a precursor to a lot of the modern breath work that we all talk about uh, now in the West. And one of the things they'll do is, here's a grape, like close your eyes, meditate, and actually taste the grape. And so what you're doing there is is fascinating. And you're saying, right, I'm going to do that, even though social stuff is great. I fully support that, just full presence while your mind is doing its thing. Um, I wanted to... Um, to leave or to, to finish the interview, um, you have 15 tactics in, um, in your book wanting, and we're not going to go through all of them, but the final one I think is maybe the most touching and most relevant for listeners right now. And the final tactic of all the tactics you can use to not be controlled by your mimetic desire. And as you write it, it's live as if you had a responsibility for what other people want. Just recognize that the people will want what you want. And that's a really powerful statement. And what I want to know is, um, how'd you arrive at that? And that was your final kind of capstone on the book. Tell me a little bit more about the meaning of that. Uh, this came through, uh, through, you know, many years of just kind of thinking about this question of, of mimetic desire and, you know, what does it ultimately mean in terms of how I live my life? Um, you know, I think one can sort of learn about the mimetic desire and immediately the instinct is kind of to hack it or, you know, how do I use this to, you know, to, to see mimetic trends in the markets or whatever, just to use it. Right. Um, but, and it almost in an egotistical or narcissistic way. Right. But the whole point of mimetic desire is that we're social creatures and 
that um, rather than just thinking about what I want and how I can, you know, change my desires or understand what I want better, that's cool. That's important. But the point is that we're interdividuals and that we we affect one another and one another's desires. And rather than see somebody who wants something that I don't want, um, could be anything. It could be a policy. It could be a lifestyle, whatever. Um, and immediately, you know, view them as a threat or not understand um, how could they possibly want to do whatever they want to do. Um, I think the, the more mature approach is to say, well, in what ways do I, have I affected or am I affecting what this person wants? Cause like we're all, we're all connected here in this web. And if there are people out there and you don't like their politics or you don't like, you know, whatever, any, whatever it is about them, right? Like think, think to yourself, like, well, maybe there's a reason, right? Why, why, you know, what, what are, what are they reacting to? Or like, what have I done? So the thinking of desire in this way is, is I think incredibly powerful. And this happens on the micro level and it happens on the macro level in my day-to-day life. Um, I just try to think about the, even the small interactions that I have as affecting what I and the people around me want, right? Like the things that I do to, you know, with my wife, uh, before the end of the day is going to affect what we want to do tomorrow in terms of, do we want to wake up and work out? Do we want to you know, her desires affect mine and vice versa. And it's easy to see in a marriage. Um, it's a little bit harder to see in a company or in a community or in a country or something like that. But we, we have to realize that we affect each other's desires. And the, the phrase came from, um, came really from C.S. Lewis, who wrote an essay called The Weight of Glory. And he basically said, you know, there's, there's no encounter that you have, however big or small, where you're not kind of nudging a, a, another person in, in one or another direction, right? There's no indifferent, there's no neutral interaction. Um, all of these little tiny, you may never know how, but all of these tiny interactions of the day are, are affecting people at some profound level. And it could be that 20 years from now, somebody will tell a story about how a little interaction with you, for whatever reason, you know, affected them deeply and they remember it. Um, and when you live with that awareness, that constant responsibility is the word I would use, a responsibility for desires, not just our own, but also the way that we're affecting other people's. Um, it just sort of, there's a gravity that it brings to life for sure. Um, but there's also a beauty of that. You know, there's a deep sort of personalism that, you know, everybody that we encounter um, is, is, a, is a person who is affected and affected by us. And every teacher, I hope, knows this, every coach knows this, but in the business world where you and I, you know, spend a lot of time, people don't usually think this way. Um, but I, I, for me, it's just been a nice mindset and mental model for living my whole life. Well, you nailed it because it would have been really easy to say, live as if you had power over what other people want, which is the way a business people look at it. And you go back to Peter Parker <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. And uh, it is a responsibility, and this is why you can use marketing to do great evil. Um, we're looking at you, Big Pharma, right now. Uh, you also can use marketing to do good, and yes, there was a global shortage of grass-fed butter in 2014 after we started putting it in our coffee, and that drove more pasture land, and I think that was a really good thing. So I do live as if I have a responsibility for what other people want. And even with this show, if we wasted everyone's time on this, there's 250 million downloads. That's 250 million hours. And that's hundreds of human lifetimes. 
<laughs> either you're a mass murderer with the little interactions you have with all the people C.S. Lewis talked about, or you're nudging people in a good direction, at least to the best of your ability. So thank you for calling it a responsibility versus a power. And that's why I think it spoke to me. And the whole book is just really cool. I, I would challenge you, if you like the show, pick up Luke's book called Wanting and read it and go, oh my God, I had no idea that I'm running on autopilot half the time. And this will help to shake you up a little bit and maybe put you more in charge of yourself. And there's there's great knowledge. You've done a, a huge job of distilling this. You can tell you're a teacher because when you know how to teach, you can write a book that actually informs and some books are less informative than others. And you nailed it just from a professional, you know, here's how to get lots of knowledge in a small amount of time in the book. So I want to thank you for writing it and helping to make people aware of the stuff they're doing that they don't know they're doing. Because that's the last human frontier of being better human beings is being more aware. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Dave. It was a pleasure. Uh, you're most welcome. You can go to Luke Burgess, L-U-K-E-B-U-R-G-I-S.com. And of course, DaveAsprey.com slash podcast. There'll be show notes and transcripts and all that kind of stuff. And if you are a member of the Upgrade Collective, you have been live in the audience here. And I actually asked all the questions from the audience members. So thanks guys for being here with me. And if you'd like to be a live audience member on the podcast and learn all of my books and get a call with me every couple of weeks and a call with the coaches and a big community of people who care a lot and have memetic desire for good stuff. We only look at good stuff. We ignore all the bad stuff. Ourupgradecollective.com. I would love to see you there and get some more time with you. Guys, the book is called Wanting. Luke Burgess is the author. Great interview. Great stuff to learn. Read the book. Be more aware. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.